Isaiah 62. We're going to pick up at verse 10. Verse 10. The scripture reads, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. So as we know, God is speaking of when they're going to return. Jerusalem has been decimated. He's giving them this hope of the future when they leave exile in Babylon to return to Jerusalem. He wants them to go through the gates to rebuild the city, to build the highway and take out all the stones and the barriers and to lift up a banner for the people. And then we would know that Jerusalem today has become a central theme, especially in the world of the three greatest religions, Christianity, Islam, and, and uh, Judaism. And, and this is a profound picture of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And we're going to take a look at it, but let's pray first. God, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. And we ask that you'd minister to us, Holy Spirit, that you'd lead us into all truth. We thank you for this time as we gather together as your people, and we love you, Lord. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. By the way, uh, elders decided that uh, in a few weeks we're going to be going to a third service. Um, So we're going to do 9, 11, and 1. Yeah, I know. Um, The idea is uh, in the the, um, summertime, the 9 o'clock service will be full because everybody wants to get to the beach. In the winter, everyone will come to the one o'clock because, you know, the sun and everything, and they just drag themselves out of bed. Cool thing is you can go to lunch, then come to the one o'clock, and you have the rest of the day free, and you can mingle in the morning, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, it's the elder's fault. All right. (laughs) So in this passage of scripture in Isaiah 62.10, what's transpired is, uh, as, as the Lord has been declaring to the children of Israel through the book of Isaiah, which is a prophetic warning uh, then the kingdom is going to be sent into exile into Babylon. We see this with Daniel, who was in exile. We see this Ezra, Nehemiah, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And there's, the multitude is sent into exile into Babylon. They're there for 200 years. And when they're finally released to go back in Ezra and in Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, of the multitude that went into Babylon, only 50,000 come out to rebuild the city. So it's, it's a remnant that comes back to rebuild this city. And in this servant song, in this, this declaration of Isaiah, after we've gone through the presentation of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, and all that's going to transpire as they return home, uh, he is declaring to them that you're going to go back into Jerusalem. And when you do, you, he says, I want you to go through, go through the gates. And, and to get through these gates, the city's been decimated. It's been destroyed. Uh, if you remember Vespasian and the destruction in 70 AD of, the, the, of Herod's temple in, in Jerusalem, what had occurred is the Romans sacked uh, Jerusalem. They burned the temple. The gold fixtures in the temple melted into the, uh, the crevices of the stones, and it was prophetic. So what ended up happening is the Roman soldiers went in, turned every stone over. And when we go there in May, uh, you're going to see these stones that have been overturned and because they were searching for the gold that had melted into the crevices uh, of, of the temple. Uh, and that's what happens when you ransack a city. They just completely destroyed it. And now he's saying, you're going to go back into the city. You're going to go through the gates and you're going to prepare a way for the people. You're going to build it up. And he says, you're going to build up the highway. 
uh, every, every major city, especially a pilgrimage city like Jerusalem, and you'll notice this in May if you go. And by the way, we've had a number of folks sign up. It's very exciting. Uh, and if you can't go in May, you can go in July with uh, uh, Kevin and Sam Sorbo. Uh, it's going to be hotter in July. Uh, so May is a perfect time to go. Just saying. Um, <laughs> I'm not a movie star. You can go with those guys. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, help me here, folks. Come on now. But in Jerusalem, it's, it's up on a hill. And so they have pilgrim songs as they're going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. It's at a high point in the nation of Israel. And, and, and with every city, there's always going to be every road re- leads to Rome, every road leads to Jerusalem type of thing. On the east coast of America, you look at where the churches are located, all the roads are really cattywampus in these eastern seaboard, seaboard cities because they would come to the church through every way they could make it. And then they just laid down pavement, and so the cities are kind of strange. You come out to the west, and they're laid out in a grid pattern. You know, certain streets are all labeled by numbers, and the other streets going east and west are labeled by letters. Uh, North-south is numbers, east-west are, are letters. And it's a grid pattern. That's not the case on the east coast, because the, the heart of the city was always where the church was located. Same thing in Jerusalem. And these roads had been destroyed on the way in. They had put impediments in there so you couldn't even access the city. The gates had, uh, were, 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 were blocked. And, and what he's saying is, I want you to go there. I want you to go through the gates. He emphasizes. He says, I want you to prepare a way for the people to return. Build it up and build up the highway. Take out the stones, the impediments from these folks that are trying to return to the, to the home of their pilgrimage and lift up a banner for the people's. This idea of a banner is this idea of God reigning in, in, in the center of a city, that he is the, he's the governing source of a city. And, and as we, we uh, take a look at the passage, here it is. It says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. The reason why I say this is because in, um, in Isaiah 62, there, it's, it's repeated. It says, go through go through the gates, emphasis. Go through, comma, go through the gates, emphasis. Some people look at it, theologians look at it, scholars look at it, and they say they're going through one set of gates to enter into going through a second set of gates. And the idea is they're going through the gates, exiting Babylon, and going through the gates, entering into Jerusalem. A very good picture because the multitudes uh, are, are in Babylon only a remnant go through the gates of their captivity into the gates of their freedom. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the, the road is narrow. And, and, and few go there by that road. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And people say, you know, and, and Jesus is the one who quoted that. It's, he didn't say, I am a way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, exclusive. I and nobody else. And people say, well, that's narrow. Well, truth is narrow. Two plus two is four. Well, I feel like it should be three. It doesn't matter how you feel. Okay, good. Um, So yeah, it is narrow. Truth is narrow. There's one right answer. And that's where you have a conflict in ideology because many folks believe truth is subjective. And and some folks say there's no absolutes. And I hear that often. And I say, well, do you believe that absolutely? That's one you put in your pocket for later. You'll get it. <laughs> there are truths. We govern our life through truths. And you have two ideological positions in life. One is we're created in the image of God, and the other is there is no God. 
And, and those create ideologies and, and directions in life. And, and with this, God is saying, return to this place with me. Go through these gates. This will be the city of peace, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is going to be the city of peace. And I want you to return there. I want you to prepare a way for the people to reestablish this polis, this city. I want you to do this work. Now, what they're declaring in this idea of traveling is that whenever you go up to Jerusalem, there's a very interesting concept. They call these psalms that were written by these ancients the song of the pilgrims. A pilgrimage is you're passing through. We're, we, we, this is not our home. We will be checking out, some sooner than others, but we will be checking out. You enter into a hotel, you don't bring all of your furniture and your family photos and your artwork and hang them on the hotel walls. You're passing through. You're just visiting. You know, you, you, you pass go, you don't collect $200. You just, you're passing through. That was a monopoly. So as you're going through, that's the idea of a pilgrim. So for those of us who have a faith in God, we realize that beyond, beyond this planet, this, this big blue marble awaits what we've always been intending. We're citizens of heaven. We're, we're sojourners. We're pilgrims. But the idea is we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. So on this earth, our responsibility is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to leave it better than we found it for the ones that will be passing through later. We want to make it a place more pleasant for those who are passing through later. By applying principles of, of truth to allow them to govern themselves in a very profound way. And so this term pilgrim or pilgrimage comes from a Latin phrase. But it is, it is inundated in scripture and it's become a vernacular in Christendom and also in the Jewish world. Uh, we find this concept of pilgrimage in, in 1 Peter. And in this passage uh, of 1 Peter it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, uh, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Peter uses this concept of pilgrim. Throughout Scripture, pilgrim is associated with this person that's passing through, sojourning. This is not our home. And as Christians, that, that's our idea. We're passing through, but we're leaving it better than we found it. And we want to have a profound impact in the culture of the land in which we will reside temporarily. Uh, again, as I said before, pilgrim is a Latin phrase. Pilgrim from the Latin peregrinus, which is a, a traveler, literally one who has come from afar, who is on a journey to a holy place. Typically, this is a physical journey, often on foot, to some place of special significance to the adherent of a particular religious belief system. And again, as, as this has been stated, one of the things, especially in the American culture, that has been uh, inculcated in our culture is the concept of pilgrim. Here we are in November, and we know what happens in November. We have Thanksgiving, and we all wear belt buckles on our hat. The joke is, why did the pilgrim's pants keep falling down? Because they wore their belt on their hat. ba dum bum you guys are tough. First service really thought it was funny. And uh, maybe they don't have a sense of humor. But let's, let's go back to the 1600s. They were called the separatists. And, and they, they 
were fleeing religious persecution. They ended up in Holland. And, and they weren't facing persecution in Holland because Holland, even as it is today, was a very open government. They allowed everybody in there. I think Holland was the first place where marijuana was legal. Uh, I mean, it, you can go in and shoot up heroin. They, they've got the red light district. Everything's a go in Holland. And so these separatists end up having been persecuted in England. And they ended up leaving Holland to find a new world. And, and this is a picture that hangs in the Capitol building, in the rotunda of the Capitol building, of William Bradford and all that landed in Plymouth. And if, as you notice in this picture, they have what appears to be a book that's open. And actually in the painting itself, in the Capitol, in Washington, D.C., you can see in the painting what the book is. This is a poor picture of it, so you don't see it that well. But can anyone guess what the book is that they have open? Bible is a good one, but it's a specific Bible. It's the Bible of the Reformation called the Geneva Bible. Now, William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake for wanting to take the scriptures out of Latin and out of Greek and putting it into the language of the common man so that they could have a relationship with God through the reading of the scriptures. And we take it for granted, the Bibles that were passed out and the ones you brought, that you get to study this. And this idea is it's a dangerous book because all of a sudden you read that we've been created the image of God. We're not, uh, we're not equal in capacity, but equal in dignity. And God has fearfully and wonderfully made us and that we're to serve one another and that no king has authority over us. And you read that and it, it really, if, if I want to suppress you, the first thing I got to make sure you, you can't do is read. And, and I need to make sure that you're, you're incapable of knowing who you are and create the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, and he's come that you'd know the truth and the truth would set you free. If I want to suppress you, I need to make sure that that's why they didn't teach the slaves in the South how to read. They did not want them to know how to read. The very first public school act in America was called the Old Satan Deluder Act. And it was in the 1600s, and the purpose of it was to teach children how to read so they could realize who they are, create the image of God, and where freedom comes from. If we no longer educate our, our young people and instead indoctrinate them, the first thing we want to do is dumb them down and just tell them what they're supposed to think instead of teach them how to learn. And so what was scary and frightening about the Geneva Bible and the Reformation is in the Sinai Peninsula, all of a sudden the Israelites come out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they go through, everyone say go through, go through. They go through the Red Sea and as they, they pass through the Red Sea, they end up there uh, and, and they're, they're guided through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there was millions of them, three to five million of them. It took 40 tons of food a day where there was no food. It would be like bringing rail car after rail car into the desert. Their clothes never wore out. They had manna every morning, 40 tons of food, water that would come out of rocks out of nowhere in the middle of the desert, quail that would be blown off course, and they'd get to eat meat until it came out of their nostrils. You can read the story. It's kind of fun. And as all of this is taking place, they're being fed in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering waiting to go into this promised land. And while they're there, they have no standing army and they have no police force. They have no king. They're given a download, an app called the Ten Commandments. <laughs> the first five commandments are in relation, and that's why there's two stations to the cross, a horizontal and a vertical, or vertical and a horizontal. The vertical stations of the first five commandments is our relationship with God. The second five commandments is our relationship with each other. If we're right this way, we'll be right this way. And so this download of this app that goes into every human soul, the three to five million of them, not requiring a standing army or police force, they did have a representative form of government, which is where we got this, this idea that, that 
you know, Moses was told to appoint godly men who are not covetous over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. That's where you have federal, state, county, and local government. Isaiah would say in Isaiah 45 that God is our king, our, our lawgiver, and our judge. That's where you have executive, legislative, judicial branch. All this came from the founders reading the scriptures, the number one quoted source in all of our founding fathers. And I've read the first 10 years of the congressional record, took a lot of coffee, boring, don't do it. I'm just stating to you that if you look at this, it is a fascinating understanding of how they came up with this constitutional form of government, this constitutional republic. And it's a representative form because they knew that the people, and as John Adams said, only a moral people can sustain a republic. Because they had this downloaded app that if they were right with God and right with each other, there wouldn't be a lawlessness in the land. Could you imagine if we just implemented the Ten Commandments in our school system? Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't commit murder. Don't covet. All of a sudden they go, wait a minute, socialism doesn't work because it's a violation of two of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet. I take from you to give to them. But that's mine. No, I'm the government. Well, I have an A. Well, I have an F. Well, I'm going to take two grades from you and give them two grades. They'll have a C. You'll have a C. Everybody will be equal. Well, I'm not working hard next time. And the other person going, when do I get my C? You haven't done anything. So I got a C last time. And all of a sudden productivity decreases. And what happens is if you're right with God and right with man... You start to be blessed. That's abundance because you're working with your hands. You're creating. Wealth is created when two people benefit. And so they start serving one another. So the Levitical laws are all protection of private property. This is so fascinating that it moves into Christendom. The Sermon on the Mount establishes these things. And if you read that Sermon on the Mount, it's a foundation that's built all the way up as Jesus declares us. And we'll be there too in the Mount of Beatitudes covering this. And, and I remember being with the Republican National Committee, the RNC, as I was asked to be the teaching pastor uh, when some of these members came. And, and it wasn't like it was a Christian group. You had agnostics and atheists, you had Mormons, you had Catholics, you had Protestants, you had Jews, both you know, Reformed, conservative, and, and Orthodox. They're all gathered under the Mount of Beatitudes, and there's a little awning over it, and it started to rain. And they're all gathering in. They got this free trip to Israel as long as it was a, a spiritual trip. And, and uh, so they all gather underneath this thing, and, and David Lane, who headed it up, headed it up uh, he says, okay, now we're going to hear from Pastor Rob McCoy. And it was like, they got this free trip to Israel, and now it's the timeshare deal. They got to hear the Christian thing. <laughs> it, seriously, and it was like, it was intense. And, and they're all looking at their phones like, oh, whatever. And they put their phone in their pocket. They're like, what do you got, preacher? And, um, and here we are, Mount Beatitudes, and, and I didn't know what to tell them. And I'd been praying about this, because this is an eclectic group. And I said, look, We've got atheists, agnostics, Mormons, Catholics, Protestants, Jews. We've got a whole eclectic gathering. I said, we're not unified in that capacity, but we're unified in the concept that we're Republicans. I was just trying to find a commonality. And I said, uh, I want to share with you the last words of Abraham Lincoln before he was shot in the head on April uh, 14th, 1865. As John Wilkes was going into the booth at Ford's Theater... And as John Wilkes Booth approached the back of Lincoln's head with a, with a Derringer, Abraham Lincoln leaned in to Mary Todd Lincoln, and, and this was confirmed by the curator of the Lincoln Library and by Mary Todd Lincoln herself. He leans in and he says these final words to her. He says, I long when this is all over, meaning the war, I long to walk with you in the footsteps of our Savior through the streets of Jerusalem. He wanted to go visit Israel. And he whispers into her ear that, and all of a sudden, boom, John Wilkes Booth shoots him, and he dies. He died the next day on April 15th. And I turned to all these Republicans and I said, here's a backwoods Kentucky boy who'd never had a formal education, who'd been drinking from the streams of liberty, and, and he longed to come to its source. And here you are where he never got to be. 
And for the next 10 days, I'd encourage you to drink deeply. Well, through that, many of them were baptized. And to this day, many of them called David and, and, and myself. And they say, you know, this was the most remarkable Easter service. I've been going back to church and on and on and on. That's one of the reasons why I got a chance to go to the White House. Because Sean Spicer was one of the folks there. And he was touched by the trip. And we still have a conversation about it. Had dinner together just a few weeks ago. It was a profound trip. And, and I share that because... This is, this is the emphasis of what occurred on the Mount of Beatitudes. Then after Christ dies and then the Holy Spirit comes upon all the, the, the believers, it travels into Europe. And in Europe, all of a sudden the scriptures uh, are, are now translated into the common language, William Tyndale. So they put together this Geneva Bible. And in the Geneva Bible, they have the scriptures, but they have a commentary on the right-hand side of each of the pages. And in the commentary, it deals with civil government. And all of a sudden they're re-examining because in the history of the world, the only government they've ever known is an oligarchy, a kingdom, a monarchy, uh, socialism, fascism, communism, any ism, and it's a group of people that rule the many. But here they're speaking of a representative form of government where people are accountable to God, and they're writing this in the margin of the Geneva Bible, and these pilgrims are reading it, and all of a sudden they're separatists, and they're trying to find a land to implement these truths to establish this. Well, they leave Holland, they come across the Atlantic, and here in this picture, they have this scripture open, and they begin to read these commentaries on civil government. King James was so frustrated by this Geneva Bible that he authorized a Bible to be printed, to be put in every church in England, and it was called the King James Version of the Bible. For those of you going, I'm King James only. Well, praise the Lord. Let me tell you where it came from. He did that Bible to remove the commentary so he could implement a monarchy upon the people and sustain it and keep them ignorant. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Now, where were we? <laughs> so with this Geneva Bible, they're so stunned by it, and they set this up, and they've been blown off course, and they've come across this, this terrible storm that, that puts them uh, way off course, and they, they don't know what to do because it's a land that they are now responsible for establishing a government. And it's the very first political, politic compact, meaning an agreement of people to govern for example, Calvary Chapel has bylaws. If the 15 elders decide that I am no longer fit to be the pastor of the church, they have a system laid out by these bylaws to remove me as the pastor. We follow that. There's a structure of government within the church. There's a structure of government that, that all the candidates here, that when they're elected, uh, they, will, they will swear to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and, and domestic, both the U.S. Constitution and the California Constitution. California Constitution comes into submission to the U.S. Constitution, by the way, because the U.S. Constitution was ratified and any state had to agree to agree to the U.S. Constitution. So if the California Constitution is in contrary to the U.S. Constitution, guess who loses? That's all I'm going to say on that. So with this being said, we as a people have a compact, a politic of government that this is what defines us as a nation. Well, this happened in, in the 1600s with this Mayflower Compact. That picture is where they're all deciding, what do we do? And they begin to get together and they say, okay, let's form a government and a compact. So the very first government politic on, on, on Western soil was done by these separatists, pilgrims, passing through, sojourners. So with these Folks that understand that they're passing through, they want to leave it better for the people coming behind them. This is not their home. They're on their way to their home, not built with earthly hands, but eternal in the heavens. They want to establish thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not dominionism or a monarchy or, 
or, or theocracy, they want to let people know that these stations of the cross, both vertical and horizontal, are so important for the governing of human beings. It was actually uh, Reverend Hooker who wrote the Declaration of Independence in Connecticut. These were all biblical Christian sermons that gave us this body politic, both of our mission statement of the Declaration of Independence and also the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution. Do your homework. We don't teach it in school anymore because we don't want anyone to know that. And so as this is laid out, this is the Mayflower Compact. Look at it. It's fascinating. Mayflower Compact was first governing document of the Plymouth Colony. It was written by the pilgrim passengers of the Mayflower, consisting uh, Puritans, adventurers, tradesmen. These pilgrims were fleeing from religious persecution by King James of England. And the Mayflower Compact was signed aboard the ship on November, 16, uh, November 11th, 1620. They signed this. Fascinating. And let me show you what it says. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. It's not very long, but I'm going to read you the first portion of it, which is fascinating. And the way it begins, interesting. Very interesting how it begins. This is, a very, this is like the Declaration of Independence. Here it is, the Mayflower Compact, very first agreement of government on the American soil. In the name of God, amen. We can't read that in schools now, but that's how they began. In the name of God, Amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, and Company, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. This is, this is so, this is, where's the separation of church and state? Well, in relation to the concept of pilgrims passing through, these pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock and they began to, to minister to one another and they established this form of government. And then along comes, um, you know what? They established a thanksgiving. Um, Michael Medved did a video with PragerU describing thanksgiving. And most people think thanksgiving is you know, a, a tryptophan overdose where you take a big nap afterwards and you just try to, you know, consume as much food as humanly possible. And that last bite, you can't even get down. You can just kind of move it in your mouth. And yeah, it just doesn't go down. Would you like a piece of pie after that? Oh, well, that's a, you know. That's not Thanksgiving, uh, and, and we don't even teach our kids, you know, they, they, they think that Thanksgiving is where the, you know, their, the pilgrim's pants fell down because they wore their belt buckle on their hat, you know, they, they don't get it. Michael Medved, here's the video, check it out. Food, football, and oppression. That's what Thanksgiving has come to mean to many Americans. Back in 2007... Seattle public school officials made national news by describing the holiday as a time of mourning and a bitter reminder of 500 years of betrayal. This new narrative describes the pilgrims as arrogant oppressors who fled persecution only to become persecutors themselves, depriving Native Americans of their land and their lives. But this is wrong on every count. First of all, the pilgrims didn't cross the ocean to flee persecution or even England. They'd been living for over a decade in Holland, Europe's most tolerant nation and a haven for religious dissenters. 
free from interference by the Church of England. They feared seduction, not persecution, worrying that their children would be corrupted by the materialistic Dutch culture. That's why they risked their dangerous 1620 voyage to a wilderness continent, not because they were running from oppression, but because they were running toward holiness, fulfilling a fateful mission to build an ideal Christian commonwealth. They initially planned to plant this model society on the wild, wolf-infested island known to natives as Manhattan. But winds and tides blew them 250 miles off course, dumping the Mayflower on the frozen coast of Massachusetts. Somehow, the pilgrims saw their dire situation as a demonstration of providential power, especially after a giant wave picked up the flimsy boat of a scouting party on a stormy December night. The turbulent sea then deposited them safely, miraculously, on a little island within sight of the ideal location for their settlement. It was a deserted Indian village with cleared land, stored supplies of corn, and a reliable source of fresh water. No, these supposedly cruel conquerors never actually invaded that village. Instead, they expressed a fervent desire to pay the natives for the dried corn they found. If only they could find someone to pay. But the former inhabitants had perished during three years of plague, probably smallpox, that immediately preceded the pilgrims' arrival. One of the few survivors of that devastation turned up several months later to welcome the English newcomers. Against all odds, he proved to be the single human being on the continent best suited to help the struggling settlers, since he spoke English and had already embraced Christianity. His name was Squanto, and he had grown up in this very village before a ruthless sea captain kidnapped him as a boy and sold him into slavery in Spain. After four years, he was freed by kindly monks, then made his way to England, and finally sailed across the Atlantic only to find his friends and family all wiped out by disease. Over the next few months, Squanto helped the English newcomers plant crops and negotiate a friendly trade agreement with the region's most important chief, Massasoit. No wonder pilgrim leader William Bradford called Squanto a special instrument sent of God for their good. The celebration, later known as the First Thanksgiving, actually involved a three-day harvest festival in October, apparently inspired by the biblical holiday of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Ninety hungry Indian warriors joined the 53 surviving pilgrims for this occasion. Nearly half of the colonists had died during the brutal winter. The Englishmen provided some vegetables, fish, and perhaps wild turkeys, while the natives brought five recently hunted deer as house gifts. The preferred sport on this occasion wasn't football, but shooting, with settlers and Indians sharing a fierce fascination with guns. Though these hardy pilgrims loom large in the American imagination, they never built their Plymouth settlement into a major colony. And nearby Boston, the later colony of Massachusetts Bay, grew so much faster that it swallowed up the great-grandchildren of the pilgrims in 1691. But the sense of purpose of the original pilgrims left a permanent imprint 
on the national character. They maintained unshakable confidence that God protected them, not to grant special privileges, but to impose special responsibilities. They saw themselves as instruments, not authors, of a mysterious master plan. Today, with our continued blessings so obvious and so overwhelming, the only reason to treat this beloved national holiday as a time of mourning is that some foolish Americans actually think that's a good idea. The pilgrims knew better. They understood that people of every culture and every era can gain more from gratitude than from guilt. I'm Michael Medved for Prager University. In this idea of go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, this pilgrimage as they're returning is going to be fraught with hardship. It's going to be difficult. As pilgrims on this earth passing through, we go through some pretty miserable times. There are times where your heart is broken. This week alone, just a couple folks in the fellowship, devastating news. There are times as a a spokesman for the Lord, where I represent him in a sense, he really makes my job difficult because I don't know how to represent him when somebody's heart is broken. One of the things that Bob Engler is a fireman, he knows this picture of seeing things that no human eye should be, should, should see. You know, I, I was for a period of time a sheriff's chaplain and when he talks about a woman giving a, a baby to him at three in the morning, devastated by maybe spousal abuse or a fire that's taking place in the home, I remember as a sheriff's chaplain coming into a home and the woman had lost her baby in SIDS and handed me the baby and said, do something. Visions that you see of, of, of human bodies distorted by, by violence. Things happening to us through the course of this pilgrimage on this earth where we, we are just overwhelmed and devastated. It is, it's a tough journey. And a pilgrimage, much like what you witnessed and what Michael Medved was sharing, there's a book that was written by Eric Metaxas. You all know him. You went out to go be a part of, of his presentation out at the Reagan Library. He wrote this book called Squanto, where Michael Medved gained most of it. And he is a historian, and he did a, a, a deep study of this, this first uh, Thanksgiving and it was celebrated by the pilgrims, native Indians of Plymouth, early October 1621. Um, and, and this idea that this, this, this man named Squanto, the Patukex uh, Indian tribe, they lived on the coast uh, in Massachusetts. And in 1608, he was 12 years old. And he, he and other braves were attacked while hunting along the coast, taken to Spain and sold as slaves. That doesn't make sense. Explain that. Human slavery is awful. No good can come of that. And he's taken to Spain, to Malaga, Spain, and while he's there, monks, Christian monks, bring him in. They share with him the gospel, and he's sold to these monks, and, he, and the monks declare, God loves you. They told him that God had seen all the difficulties he'd been through, and that if he would trust God, that, he would be, they, that these difficulties, God will use it together for good beyond things you could imagine. He embraces this gospel, this, this Christian faith, 
And, and he was with these monks for five years. He longed to return home to his family, and they had a heart for him to return. And so they, they allowed him to journey back to London. And in England, he lives with a man named John Slaney. And during the next five years while waiting in England for another ship, he learned their language and culture. He learned the king's English by the Slaney family. And in 1618, uh, a ship's found. Now, ships going to the New World are like space shuttles going to space. There's not a lot of them. And he finally gets on this ship through the help of the Slaney family. His, his homecoming was, was devastating. You want to talk about a pilgrimage that is wrought with pain. And, and for folks sitting in this room, they have been devastated. He learned while he was away that his entire family had died from smallpox. He was discouraged, didn't understand how God could allow this to happen. He was so disheartened that he left uh, and found another tribe. And he, for a while, he lived in the woods by himself. Sam said a tribesman with another village told Squanto that a shipload of families had come a year before, settled at the edge where, the villi- where his village had once been. And, and Squanto goes back and he meets these folks. He greets them with the English language, King's English. He teaches them how to farm, how you take five fish and you put them in with one seed of corn and that allows the fertilization so that these things grow up and you can have a corn crop, which was uh, understood in, in, um, in, in America. It saves them from a winter of starvation. They live. They knew that, it was, it was, that he was an instrument of God. William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth, spoke. He says, like you, Joseph was also taken from his home and sold as a slave, but God had a plan for him. Through Joseph, God was able to save many people from starving. What man had intended for evil, God intended for good. Then Bradford smiled at Squanto. Perhaps God has sent you to be our Joseph. They worked hard in that new home. He showed them how to plant corn by burying these three kernels with the, the fish as fertilizer. God saved them. You can read this in William Bradford's account that he was an instrument of God. We're, we don't teach this in school anymore. And, and as a result of all of this, this idea of pilgrims passing through, go through the gates is the declaration of the passage this morning. Go through the gates. God always does that. You have the Egyptians behind you, a, a, a wall of mountains on your left and on your right, and the Red Sea in front of you. There's no escape. God says, go through. Go through. And by faith, you go through. And it's hard, and it's scary, and it's frightening. And then God parts the Red Sea. You walk through, and there's a, a pillar of fire in front of you and a cloud behind you, and the Egyptians are covered in the cloud, and they're pursuing you, and you're scared the whole time. You get to the other side, and he does the Pharaoh dead man's float. He, he consumes the entire Egyptian army. And, and as this occurs, this is God moving on behalf of his people. Go through. I get people who come to me all the time, man, I'm really going through it. I'm really going through it. You know what I say? Good. At least you're not stuck in it. Keep moving. Keep moving. But there's a problem. And as I said earlier, and we're coming to the close of the message, as I said earlier, it's a tough road, this pilgrimage. God says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up. When you're going on this pilgrimage, it gets difficult. One of the pilgrim songs is Psalm 84. It says, blessed is a man whose strength is in you, O God, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God and Zion. You see that word Baca, it means they go through the valley of tears. Their heart is broken. You've been diagnosed with cancer. Your child is sick. Something has been forced upon your family that breaks your heart. 
And if your world is not a pilgrimage, if you don't have something on the other side awaiting you, knowing a God works all things together for good, and it's even tough for me at times to explain how that's going to happen, but 54 years walking on this earth, he's never let me down. And you walk through that valley of tears and you hold their hand and you know that the scripture says in this pilgrimage is, is blessed. Oh, how happy is the man whose strength is in God, whose heart is set on this pilgrimage. I'm only passing through. This is a screwed up world and I'm going to leave it better than I found it. A lot of things don't make sense, but I'm going to keep walking. And as you walk through this valley of tears, God turns it into a spring and he causes it to be covered with pools and they go from strength to strength and each one appears before God and Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Go through the gates. Keep walking. He will work all things together for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Revelation 12, or excuse me, Revelation 22, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the Greek alphabet, A to Z. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. You see, God says to go through, to go through the gates, but then he says prepare a way for the people. And the problem is, the problem is, we as Christians create stumbling blocks. We're not preparing a way for the people. He says, build up, build up the highways, get people access to this faith. But, but as, the song, or as Isaiah said in Isaiah 57, 14, one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. You know what a stumbling block is to people? They look at the church and they say, you talk about a God of mercy, a God of grace. You talk about a God of commandments. You talk about a God of purity. But the way you live your life is contrary to this God you speak of. You talk about this idea of vertical commandments and horizontal commandments, relationship with God, relationship with each other. But 7,280,000 of you don't even bother to pull a lever. A government given by God that is pushed down to the people that were created in his image with inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And you don't even care. Your apathy is a, is a block, it's a stumbling block. And they look at the church and they say, how anemic. Your gospel is myopic, it's truncated. You, you go through the ritual of communion where you say, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, you will be saved. You raise your hand, you come, you get the bread, you get the drink. You go back and you do nothing. And you live your life of sin and the world looks at it and they say, this is a stumbling block. I don't get Christianity. It's supposed to change culture. The church has been in California for over 50 years, growing at exponential rate, and the, the, the state has the highest poverty rate of any state in the union, the highest debt of any state in the union. We, we've aborted more children in California than the entire population of Canada. It's a stumbling block. I go and I speak to pastors, and I say, the scripture in Timothy which says, pray for kings and those in authority that we have quiet and peaceable lives and all godliness and reverence. I say, name for me your five city council members, your five school board members. You can hear a pin drop. They don't know. And here the school board, you have members coming here. They're all invited to, to seek your consent. What are the issues that will allow us to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence? They're, they're working on behalf of the children of this community. And the scripture says, we want to talk about a stumbling block. The scripture says in Matthew, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offense, for offenses must come. But woe to the man for whom that offense comes. We remove the stumbling block for the children. The scriptures declare that we're supposed to step into this. 
As Christians, we have access. The way we've obtained this access, the way that we go through is uh, Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Jesus. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He intercedes for us. Why can't we intercede for others? Why are we so apathetic? Silence in the face of evil is complicit with evil itself. He went through, he gave us access. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We have access, let's give it to others. Clear the way, build the road, build it up, remove the stumbling blocks. 1 Corinthians, is that it? Yeah. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews it's a stumbling block, to the Greeks it's foolish, but to those who are called, both to Jews and to Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then finally John 4 Jesus needed to go through Samaria, so he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, and near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. You know why? Because there was a woman who needed him. There was no stumbling block. The disciples said, why are we going this way? Why, do you, why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? Because he knew this woman had been married many times and was living with a man. It was was, was somebody who was searching. And he brought her living water. She ended up ministering to her entire village. He needed to go through Samaria. There was no stumbling block for her to receive that. It came at great expense to him because it wasn't a straight route. It was circuitous at best. And I share all that because when the scripture declares to us that we are, we are to, to remove these stumbling blocks and we're to set this up for others to have access, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take away or take out the stones and lift up a banner for the peoples. It's not just an election. It's the opportunity to minister to your community. These men and women come forward putting their hat in the ring to say, here am I, I want your consent. And the idea is we as a people need to build this city in such a way that the pathway is accessible for all who would want to know Christ. And we do that by engaging. 